sermon this morning is from the epistle of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 17. Let me explain, make an explanation about this sermon. It grows out of a message I preached at noon on Friday at the noon luncheon a few weeks ago. Several fellows came up to me and said, Preacher, that needs to be preached at, uh, the, to the larger group, to the larger congregation. And uh, one man said, um, I just really feel that God would have you preach that on Sunday morning. So I want to try to do that. I've um, done some work on it, so it's not the same, but um, it is the idea I want to deal with this morning is how to handle disappointment. And I'll begin reading at verse 17. I'll go through verse 8 of chapter 3. Chapter 2, verse 17. But we, brethren, having been bereft of you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face, for we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us, for who is our hope, our joy, our crown, our exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent out about your faith, to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor should be in vain." But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you're always thinking kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Apostle Paul wanted to go to Thessalonica, he had his heart set on it, but he didn't get to make it. And his experience speaks to ours because somewhere along the way, each one of us is going to have to deal with disappointment, with um, aborted dreams and uh, detained plans and uh, frustrated hopes. For every man's life is a, is a diary in which he intends to write one thing and he has to write another. This wasn't the first time, nor, it was, nor was it the last time that the Apostle Paul experienced disappointment. If you'll read sometime the 15th chapter of the book of Romans, you'll find this um, significant statement. He said, to the people, to the Christians at Rome, when I make my journey to Spain, I'll come unto you. And, and, and you don't have to know too much about the New Testament to know that 
the apostles' great dream was to go to Spain. When God had put this world thing on his heart from the very first time that he, he knew that he was going to be a missionary, he dreamed of taking the gospel to that western extremity of his world. He, his whole life was bound up in his plans to go to Spain. He, he had his heart set on it and he got a prison cell instead. And it opens up volumes to us this morning about the frustration of desire and the biblical answer to it, about disappointment and how to handle it. And it helps us to begin to develop a philosophy for failure because unless you have a philosophy for failure, you're really not ready to deal with the main issues of life. In the epic poem, The Odyssey, Ulysses is leading his army to Troy and they come to this river that, has, that is flooded out of its banks by unseasoned rains upriver. And it was a long time before barges so they couldn't bar, uh, uh, get pontoons and cross the river. The only thing they could do is just sit down by the river's edge and wait for the water to subside. And as they sat there waiting for the water to run down, they begin to watch and realize that their, their plans were washing away with the river. And Ulysses walks out into the middle of the river and begins to beat, uh, to whip the river with his hands like you would wildly thrash a horse. Can you think of anything any more futile than thrashing a flood? But who is there this morning has, who has not done that when the unseasonable things begin to invade your life, things you didn't count on? How many has not felt like that? And so the question this morning is, how do you handle disappointment when it comes? Or what do you do when your ticket to Thessalonica has been canceled? Well, in the first place, you recognize, you remember that no one, not very many people, ever get to realize plan A. Plan A's are never, ever really realized by the great majority of folks. Most of us have to live our lives on the basis of second choices. There are very few people who ever really get to live their life on the basis of what they really wanted. And that's a big problem for a lot of people. I was reading somewhere the other day that a man suggests that the increase, that he believes the increase in suicides and alcoholism and some forms of nervous breakdown are because people have been training for success when they should have been training for failure. Oh, I know there are a lot of success boys around in the country today who tell us that if you just give your life to God, you'll always be wealthy and you'll always be healthy. But is that really scriptural? Is it really realistic? Realistically, failure is more common than success. Poverty is more prevalent than wealth and disappointment is more normal than arrival. I love the book of Philippians. Joy just oozes out the pores of that book. And in that book, the Apostle Paul, having all kinds of problems in his own life, says, I know how to have abundance and I know how to have nothing, for in whatever state I'm in, I've learned to be content. And I looked at that the other day and that word learned jumped right out at me. Learned. I said, oh no. 
For contentment is not something that just happens automatically. I mean, when you walk an aisle in a church and receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you don't go out of there and from then on you're perfectly content with life. No, contentment is, a, is an education. It's a process of learning that God takes us through. And if you'll read that statement in its context, that learning process involved unfulfilled dreams and unfaithful friends. And God brought the Apostle Paul through those experiences to the point that he learned to be content. So that happiness and contentment is not the result of getting what we want. It's the result of accepting with gratitude what we get. And it's a learned thing. Very few people ever get to experience plan A. But secondly, there's usually always a plan B. Now the Apostle Paul wanted to go to Thessalonica, but plan A didn't work out. So he didn't just say, well, you know, going to Thessalonica's history, I'll just, you know, I'll forget about that. No, he didn't do that. He thought there's got to be another way. There's another plan. Timothy came to his mind. For you see, no event is final and you really can't appraise a situation on the day that it happens. Now there's a beautiful illustration of plan B in the New Testament. You remember the story of the woman who was taken in the act of adultery and these Pharisees, pious folks, brought her to Jesus to see what he would do about it. The law said if someone did that, they were to be stoned. Now they were going to try to catch Jesus in a trap if he says stone her, he tramples mercy underfoot. But if he says let her go, he steps on the law. So Jesus turned around and he wrote on the ground. Now I've heard a lot of sermons on what he wrote, you know. Everybody has his own opinion. There's some great sermons on it. doesn't matter whether it's you know, factual or not. Nobody really knows, but makes good sermonic material. And let me give you what might have been written on the ground by Jesus. Maybe he wrote on the ground plan B. There's always a plan B. And what he wrote on the ground was this. Why not you folks who have been given mercy, who have experienced mercy, why not begin to express some? Why not plan B? And so when he got up and he addressed the folks, he said, we've got plan A, we've got plan B. Let the man who is without sin cast the first stone. In other words, if you have ever received mercy, why don't you show some? And they said, plan B's just fine. Where would any of us be this morning were not God the God of a second chance? Where would any of us be? You know, hardly few game, there are hardly few ball games that are ever won in the first half. I was watching the University of Texas and the University of Oklahoma shootout last year on television. Some of you were there getting drenched. I was home in my clean, dry living room watching the game. And along about the second half, when that game was really in doubt, the, the announcer made a big point of pointing out that nine out of ten of those games over a period of scores of years were won in the second half, and most of them were won in the last two minutes. Where would any of us be this morning if God were not the God of the second half? There's usually always a plan B. And so the disciples were in this boat one night, and the storm came up, 
and Jesus was up in the hull of the ship asleep, and they woke him up and they said, Lord, do you, don't you care that we perish? And Jesus calmed the winds, and he said to them, Tidwell paraphrase, boys, where's your faith? Now, I've got a good idea that most of the time we've read that statement, we've had Jesus say this, boys, don't you believe, don't you have enough faith to believe that I'll keep this boat afloat and I'll calm this storm when it happens? That's the way we interpret what he said. But maybe he said something like this, boys, don't you have enough faith to trust me even if the boat sinks? Care us not that we perish? In other words, they were saying, Lord, we believe you care about us if you keep the boat afloat. Could it be that Jesus was saying, Fellas, the kind of faith I want from you is the kind of faith that will not abandon ship when plan A fails, but will keep on trusting me when the storms come up and the boat sinks. There's always a plan B. For God is the God of plan Bs. Third point. Plan Bs are usually better than plan As. You ever notice that? Now, I don't know how well Paul would have done if he'd have made it to Thessalonica, but I have a good feeling. I have a, just kind of a gut feeling. That's Knox County language. I just have a kind of an, in, a, 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 a kind of an inner feeling that he wouldn't have done as well in Thessalonica as Timothy, as Timothy did. I've got a feeling that the best thing happened there because God has already promised all things work together for better for good to them that love God and are the called according to His purpose. Timothy's arrival in Thessalonica brought the better plan, for plan B's are usually always better than plan A's. I don't know whether you heard this or not, but I heard it. One of those hostages that, that was hijacked on that TWA flight in Lebanon, passing through um, that uh, stopping point in West Germany, Wiesbaden, wasn't it? And they all went through this physical examination and one of those hostages, they, they found a growth on his back. And they sent him to Chicago immediately and he had surgery on that growth. It was one of those tumors, uh, one of those cancers that is, that is rapid spreading, rapidly growing kind. And the doctor said, quote, if that plane had not been hijacked, then that man had not had that examination when he had it. He probably would not have had that cancer detected in time and would have died. Now the Apostle Paul's plane to Thessalonica was hijacked. But plan B went into operation and the plan and will of God came to be. For plan B's are usually better than plan A's. Guy took his sweetheart to the dance. I know he wasn't a Baptist. He had never been there. <laughs> he, he took his sweetheart to the dance, and while they were waltzing around, he saw an old friend he hadn't seen in a long time. He said, hey, come over here and meet my sweetheart. And, and so he came in, asked for a dance while the friend was dancing with his sweetheart. She fell in love with him, and he fell in love with her. Now, the guy lost his girlfriend, but he made a million dollars. He wrote, I was waltzing with my darling to the Tennessee waltz. When an old friend I happened to see, I introduced him to my sweetheart, and while they were dancing, my friend stole my sweetheart from me. I mean, plan B's are sometimes better than plan A's. 
There was a boy in Decatur, Illinois, who was interested in photography. He wanted to be a photographer. And so he noticed in the back of this old magazine where he could write off and get a, get a magazine on photography, and so he did. When it came back, somebody goofed. And he got this magazine entitled Magic, Mind Reading, and Ventriloquism. Now, he was disappointed at first, but that last word intrigued him. And so he began to study the art of throwing your voice and became so astute at it that Edgar Bergen spoke to more people on Sunday night than all the preachers in America combined. And that goof that somebody made was a fruitful frustration. Plan B's are often better. And Whistler wanted to be uh, a, a general in the army. He wanted to be an army man, but he flunked out of West Point. He failed his chemistry exam. He said after he became the famous artist with a chuckle, if silicon had been a gas, I would have been a major general. Have you ever noticed how many of these epistles that Paul wrote were from prison? I mean, most of them. Now, I don't know for sure. Am I a mind reader? Not on your life. But I have a feeling that probably, perhaps, maybe none of them would have ever been written by this man who went up and down the country blazing for Christ with a cross on his back had not God thrown him in a jail and gotten him quiet. And so Jesus walked up the cross, up the hill with a cross on his back and was impaled on that instrument of defeat. But in that place of Calvary, he turned that cross into a throne from which he ruled the world and rules the kingdom and offers salvation to all men. For plan B's are often better than plan A's. Leads me to point four. Now if you're counting them, you're wondering, wonder how many more he has. I've got two more, counting this one. Plan, uh, point number four. Point number four is that if you really have faith, you'll see plan, frustrated plans, disappointments as a divine opportunity. Now you're going to see that spirit in the book of Acts. You see it in the Apostle Paul's life, but you're going to see it in the book of Acts for this New Testament church Learn from Jesus how to turn, how to make the winds of opposition serve. And so they threw him in jail, and they just turned, they just started a revival meeting in the jail and converted the jailer. And when they were persecuted and scattered, they just broke out in a passion of preaching. And when they were hailed before courts and kings, they just turned the courtroom into a church and the prisoner's dock into a pulpit. And when they were thrown in prison, to silence them, they turned the prison cell into an author's workshop and they came out of the dark dungeons with a New Testament in their hands because they saw every frustration as a divine opportunity. Borum, great Australian preacher, said that a man rented a house, beautiful home, down by the riverbank and everything just going great. He had underneath his house, he had an airy cellar where he raised prize hens Things went fine until the river got up one night with heavy rain drowned all of his hens. In his fury, he went to the landlord the next day to, to say he's moving out. And the guy said, why are you leaving? He said, the river got up and drowned all my hens. He said, well, don't leave. Try ducks. It's a... It's, it's, a new it's, it's kind of a, a New Testament story that, that, that God... Listen, God never shuts a door but what He opens a better one. Amen? I've never seen that happen. 
God never drowns hens except ducks. God never shuts doors except new doors, better doors open. See the disappointment as a divine opportunity. When I was pastor in Fort Worth, a young girl came to the seminary. Married woman, her and her husband came to study for the ministry, joined our church. Beautiful lady. She had no arms. She was born with stubs that were just about that long here, just kind of halfway between her shoulder and her elbow. I didn't think too much about that. She had a baby. You know, that's not that big a deal. I got to thinking, how she cared for that baby without arms? Now, I asked her, I watched her. She changed that baby's diaper just like that. She'd use her stubs and she'd use her chin and her feet to change that baby's diaper. And she told me the first scripture verse her father and mother ever taught her was this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And she said, in essence, not the words I'm using, but she said, in essence, I saw that as a divine opportunity. You like to read Irma Bombeck? Sure you do. The other day I was out in the hospital and a lady said, here, take this and read it. It was the funniest book I've read in a long time. I found this written by Irma Bombeck. Uh, kind of, uh, took, kind of uh, left her little humor and, and said this. I hope you're listening for this. Ironically, these two events happened recently within a day of each other. On the first Saturday of last month, a 22-year-old tennis player hoisted a silver bowl over his head at center court at Wimbledon. On the day before, five blind mountain climbers, one man with an artificial leg, an epileptic, and two death adventurers stood atop the snow-capped summit of Mount Rainier. It was a noisy victory for the tennis player who shared it with 14,000 fans, some of whom had slept on the sidewalks outside the club for six nights waiting for tickets. It was a quiet victory for the climbers who led their own cheering. There's a lot of rhetoric exchanged at Wimbledon regarding bad calls. At Mount Rainier, they learned to live with life's bad calls a long time ago. The first man to reach the mountain tore up his artificial leg in getting there. Somehow, in all of this, I see a parallel that all Americans are going to have to come to grips with. In our search for heroes and heroines, we often lose our perspective. We applaud beauty pageant winners. We ignore the woman without limbs who paints pictures with a brush in her teeth. We extol the courage of a man who will sail over ten cars on a motorcycle. We give no thought or parking space to the man who treads his, life through li treads his way through life in a world of darkness and silence. Not all winners are heroes. Not all handicapped people are heroes. Hero is a term that should be awarded to those who, given a set of circumstances, react with courage, dignity, decency, and compassion. People who make us feel better for having seen or touched them. Now wake up and listen to this. I think the crowds went to the wrong summit and cheered the wrong champion. Who is the champion? We are the champions. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. The champion is the man who handles life's disappointments as a divine opportunity to triumph and give glory to God. And shame on you if you miss that opportunity.
while I've got you, one last word. In order to see the fulfillment of your dreams, you may need somebody to help you. For a part of God's plan might include a Timothy in your life. Probably does. You know, I got to thinking. Paul was disappointed because he didn't go to Thessalonica. But what about Timothy? Maybe it was intended for Timothy all along. And then I discovered that marvelous little passage of Scripture. It's found over in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. You know, what that, you know what that chapter is about. It's about the roll call of the heroes of God, those who have conquered. And then it says, listen to this, it says, And none of them received what had been promised them. For God resolved on something far better for us, underline, for he purposed not to see to enable them to see the fulfillment of their dreams without us. Now I'm going to say two things about that. I'm going to say the first thing is this: that the dreams and the plans of some people depend on you. Every time I stand in this pulpit, I'm aware of the fact that the people, the men of God who have stood here to preach had a dream for this church. And I'm the link to their dream. And every time I come into this auditorium and you, we are sitting in pews, we are treading where saints have trod. And the fulfillment of dreams, of the dreams of men and women who have come this way, some I've buried depend on you. You are the fulfillment, the link to the fulfillment of their dreams. Second thing I want to say is this. If you're going to see your dreams realized, you better, have, you better find somebody to whom you can pass that dream along. You better find you a Timothy. You better sit down with your children and share your dreams with them as you share the plan of God for the ages. That's what the Old Testament is about, taking what God has done and passing it on to the next generation. This story, and I'm through, true story. Got four minutes to tell it. It'll take about three. My phone rang the other day. One of the funeral directors here, at the town, here in town said, could you come and, and, and do a service for a person? I said, of course. He said, when is it? He, said, he told me the time. He said, I won't tell you about it. He said, this is a county burial. He said, this lady died in a nursing home and, and spent most of her life in, in an institution, um, an eleemosynary institution here in Oklahoma, state hospital. And he said, um, it'll just be a simple, simple, just simple burial out in Potter's Field out in the county-owned part of the cemetery on the far east side. He said, as far as we know, she has no family. He said, her, her family years ago, nobody even knows them, took her to that state hospital and abandoned her. And she really wasn't, he said, that bad mentally, but she was abandoned. And he said, when she got older, they, 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 couldn't, they couldn't care for her there. They put her in a nursing home in Marietta. And so I did. And I drove up out there in that cemetery. And um, 
the only persons there to bury that lady were the two people from the funeral home, a representative from the nursing home, and me. I thought of two things as I stood there. I, I, I think about it and I get emotional. It's a sad experience for me. I thought of two things. I thought of that verse of Scripture that says that not a sparrow falls to the earth without the Father. Now, it doesn't say that not a sparrow falls to the earth that God doesn't see die. It says that God attends the funeral. God attends the death of every sparrow. And I don't know when, I'm honest to say it, I don't know when I felt closer to God than when I stood there by that little casket in Potter's Field. And the second thing I thought was, who's going, who's going to carry on this dear woman's dream? You know she had to have one. You know she had to feel something, some plan for life. You know she had to do that. Who's going who's to do it? And so I said my prayer and I left. And on the way back to town, I've traveled that road a jillion times. I thought... I wonder how many people have someone to whom they can entrust their plans. Would you pray with me? Father, you're such a mighty God, such a great God. You're the only one who can take a frustrated plan a deferred hope, a defeated dream, and make it work. And Lord, give us the faith to believe you, to trust our lives to you, to live in victory, to climb the summits and erect our flags and praise the Lord. God, I pray for each one here today. I just know that there's got to be a broken heart in this congregation, a disappointed heart. And I pray, God, that this word will be encouragement through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now I'm going to ask you to listen to these invitations. The first invitation for you this morning is to Give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. You came this morning perhaps just as a curious person, as a spectator, maybe out of responsibility you came, but God has spoken to your heart about your own lostness, about your own need. Sometimes I think our disappointments are just ways that God is just preparing us to meet Him. So come this morning and give your heart and life to Christ. If you made a decision this week somewhere, maybe at Falls Creek, you'll need to come publicly. Jesus never called a secret disciple that I know about. The second invitation this morning is for those of us who 
who need to walk in that faith dimension that enables God to work His miraculous work in our life. We, we live in the, the basis of the flesh and human effort and human energy and ingenuity. We just fail miserably. Maybe our disappointment this morning is God humbling us to the place we can say, God, I can't do it without you. I've lived away from you. I want to come back. Third invitation this morning is for you to come and join our church. We really do need you. I feel honestly and sincerely that this church is committed to doing God's will in this place as best we know how. We'd like for you to be a part of it. So these are the invitations as clearly as I can define them. So I'll ask you to come. Kevin will be here to help us receive folks. If several come, you know, and there's a press we have from deacons, Mark and, and George and some of these guys will help us. I think you're going to come today because God has been in our midst. I think you'll do what God wants you to do while we stand and sing. You come.